I'm Jesse, and you're listening to Red Cloaks Radio Extra Innings, where we are following the progress on the Row Act. Today is August 17th, and my co-host is Martha from the Boston Red Cloaks. And we are very excited because we have some guests, and they are... I'm Linda from Indivisible Acton. I'm Laurie from Cape Cod Women for Change. I'm Glennis, formerly from Indivisible in uh, Congressional District 8. We're also joined by Robbie Goldstein, who is running for the seat in CD8. Uh, he's a physician and infectious disease specialist who founded and is the medical director of the Massachusetts General Hospital's uh, Transgender Health program. Thank you for having me. Robbie, we're really excited because we haven't had the opportunity to talk about the Roe Act with a medical professional yet. So if we can start there, it would be terrific. How do you view this piece of legislation given your specific expertise? Well, I think the, the first thing to say is that reproductive health care is health care. And so when we're talking about abortion access, when we're talking about access to reproductive services, that is about talking about healthcare expansion. And as a medical professional, I see that every single day. I see the patients in my clinic who need reproductive healthcare, and I wanna make sure that they have access to that no matter where they live, no matter who they are, no matter where they're coming from. You've also focused quite a bit on looking at transgender issues, and that's another area we haven't had the privilege of discussing with someone. So can you speak a bit to that? Because the definitions right now in Massachusetts are really based on a traditional idea that only women can be pregnant. Yes. Well, I think there's there are some specifics that we should talk about when it comes to reproductive health care and reproductive justice in the LGBTQ world, and then also some sort of broader ideas that we can think about. When it comes to the specifics, I think we have to remember that it is not just cisgender women that can get pregnant and may need access to abortion. There are many non-binary folks and trans men who may be the victims of rape, who may be victimized, marginalized, and may need access to reproductive health care and to abortion. And what has been really wonderful working in the Transgender Health Program is building out those relationships with organizations that focus on reproductive health and making sure that our patients have a safe and affirming place to go to if they need that type of care. Um, but then also making sure that we can help educate the folks in those programs about how they can provide gender-affirming hormone therapy how they can have conversations with folks around gender and what that may mean and how that may play out. So there's been this great crosstalk. Um, and I think when you talk about the specifics, it's really important that people in my world who are practicing medicine and in the trans world and providing primary care know about reproductive care and the folks in the reproductive world know about trans care. But I also wanna say there's a, a broader conversation here, which is that I think we have to recognize in this country that so much of the LGBTQ equality movement actually comes from the women's equality movement. Um, and it is really important that those two hold each other together because when women are able to succeed, when they're able to have access, when they're able to have equity, LGBTQ folks follow with access and equity as well. One thing we learned at the hearing last June, in June 2019 on the Roe Act, was that the turnout was incredibly high with supporters who really wanted to see the Roe Act passed into law. And we were told that the turnout struck people as closest only to when people came out for marriage equality in Massachusetts. It tapped into that kind of passion and energy. And I know, Lori, you were one of the people, I don't know, Glennis, if you were there, but people driving in from across the state making that trip because it mattered that much to them. 
them. And I'm seeing that parallel in, in your areas of interest right here. Do you feel like this is the right time that the robot could pass? Have people in Massachusetts reached a point where this is something they can take on openly? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think um, there, there's a movement in Massachusetts to, to really push for the Roe Act and to push for expansion of reproductive access. That is a movement that is spreading across the country. I think there's a very clear recognition all across the country, certainly here in Massachusetts, that it is time for us to make sure that Roe v. Wade is legislated, that safe and legal access to abortion is a part of the law in every state and uh, all across the country. One of the, the similarities, I think, between the marriage equality battle, that fight, and what is happening now when it comes to the Roe Act and abortion access is this idea that we have to do this locally, we have to do this state by state, and we have to do this federally. So there needs to be coordination between our state legislatures and the House and the Senate, right, to make sure that bills are moving in parallel and we're expanding access in all 50 states and at the federal level. The seat you're running for includes parts of Boston, Braintree, Brockton, Eastern Massachusetts, cities and towns, all the way to Bridgewater. Glynis, you are someone who's really, having lived there, really close to understanding what it's like. In terms of what Robbie just said about needing to act at the federal level and even the local level, what is it like from your perspective? Yeah, so I lived in Quincy and my polling place actually has a memorial to the victims of abortion there. So I certainly got the message about what would be accessible to me when I moved there, or what people would like for me to have access to. And it, it actually did directly affect me because I'm currently 38 weeks pregnant. And at the time that early in the pregnancy, I, you know, th there is always a chance that you might need to consider a medical termination. And I was thinking, you know, maybe I'll have to travel back to somewhere where I know I can get an abortion because I'm not sure what my access is going to be like here. And also with the timing of the pandemic of, you know, when I learned I was pregnant, even though it was a wanted pregnancy and the, you know, when the system could actually get me in to confirm and do all those things, this quite made a, a tight timeline that even though I'm not, I'm, you know, have my own independent income. I'm not a teenager. I'm not, I don't have a lot of the limitations that a lot of patients who seek abortion have. I still felt like it was quite perhaps a touch and go thing. So I really would appreciate leadership on the federal as well as local level to enforce really my access to abortion. So uh, Robbie, I wanted to ask you about the Hyde Amendment. Can you explain what the Hyde Amendment is and why you think it should be repealed? The Hyde Amendment is a conservative, anti-choice piece of legislation that was pushed forward um, to basically say that the federal government cannot provide any funding for abortions in this country. And we know from the data and from the experience since the Hyde Amendment passed that what this does is it creates enormous disparities in reproductive access care. It disproportionately impacts black and brown communities, low income communities, folks living in rural areas. It really provides a barrier to so many people who need access to reproductive care, including abortion. And so the Hyde Amendment has been the law of the land in, in many ways, has been on the books. And we now have the opportunity to actually repeal it. We have the political will at the federal level, I believe, to actually get the Hyde Amendment repealed and to make sure that federal insurance plans, the federal government can invest in abortion care and abortion access. I think to do that, uh, and if you'll allow me to be a little bit political here, I will say that we need to make sure that our leaders care about choice. 
and that our leaders care about reproductive justice. Um, I'm running in a district with a current representative who describes himself as pro-life, some people would say anti-choice, and I think it's really important that the representation that we send to Washington is going to fight for a pro-choice agenda is going to make sure that the Hyde Amendment is repealed. It's going to make sure that the federal government works in conjunction with the state legislatures so that we can do that 50-state battle and that nationwide battle all at the same time. And can I say as a constituent in CD8, uh, I have attempted to reach out to Stephen Lynch on a number of issues and to you know, just communicate with him as, as a constituent. He is not somebody who's interested from hearing from us. And he's not somebody who's particularly interested in being accountable or being a leader in the areas that, that cover his brief, even aside from being a, a total backwards mark on, on the abortion issue. And, you know, I know that I couldn't reach out to him for assistance if I needed him in that way. But even if I, <laughs> even if I could trust him to match my position, he would not respond. I mean, I've, I tried to get a group of uh, 30 to 40 constituents to speak with him for months earlier this spring, and he simply refused to do that. So I think that Robbie has already demonstrated to me as a, a future constituent a lot more consistency and willingness to hear from us and to respond to what the people he's representing are actually needing. Let's just talk about leadership a little bit because we've had different people on who talk about someone is a representative because they hear from constituents and then they go forward. Other people have said, look, I think I think elected people need to lead. They have more information. They know what it looks like at 30,000 feet. They need to go and sit there outside the subway station or at the picnics and tell people, here's what's going on and here's the legislation you need to know about. How do you see yourself, Robbie, in that spectrum? I think there's there's a role for both, right? So there's a role for um, sort of listening to the community, responding to the community, um, lifting up the voices of the community and making sure that those voices get heard uh, in the halls of Congress and for my case or the halls of the state house for a state representative. And then there's also the other side which is making sure that folks all across the district understand the importance and the reason why we're fighting for in this case reproductive access and abortion, right? Some of that I found in this campaign is about making sure that people understand the data and they understand the evidence. They understand the disparities that exist, right? The, the enormous limitations that are facing black and brown women in this country when it comes to reproductive care. The um, challenges that people may face if they live in a state um, that has moved forward with restrictions on abortion care. And it, there is a role for leaders in our government, both federally and at the state level, to push that information out there and to make sure that people really understand there's a source of truth. But it also has to come right with the other side, with listening from, to the community. Robbie, it's already apparent that your medical background informs a lot of your stance on political issues. I'm just wondering how you might work that once you get to Congress. How might you lord it over your peers in Congress? I can't stop being a physician. I will always be a physician. And the, this entire campaign was actually driven by the stories and the challenges that my patients have shared with me. That I think is a really useful part of the campaign and will be useful when I'm in Washington to help make sure that what we're doing is grounded in uh, what people actually need, what they want, what will make their lives better. I think um, one of the things that, that medicine has taught me 
is how to do this work of listening to stories and pulling data and marrying those two to drive forward with the most effective plan. Really good physicians and really great people in the medical world know how to do that really well. They can do that skill of taking the subjective information from our patients, the objective information that we receive from whatever source it may be, and then creating the best plan. I think in Washington, we have, um, we've not been doing a great job of marrying those two things. There's a lot of people out there who, who put up their subjective stuff, their opinion, right, their um, beliefs, but they don't oftentimes bring in the data. And then there are other people who simply rely on the data and aren't able to convince other people to join them because they don't have that emotion with it. So I, I'm hopeful that my skills as a physician will allow me to marry those two and actually move things forward and bring people along building a coalition. I think that's a brilliant observation and, and a really good point that needs to be made on so many different issues, not just this one. Yes. Thank you. That, that was eye-opening. Robbie, I'm curious about your experience during the pandemic and what effect you've seen on the patients that you have dealt with, um, especially as far as women who might, or people who might need access to abortion or reproductive health care. What has been your experience? You know, it, it is changing day after day, week after week, month after month. In the beginning, there was this sort of immediate clampdown of the hospital and access to care was very, very challenging. Now, we did what we could to get people in for very urgent procedures, including abortions, if, if that was a procedure that had to be done. But I can tell you when you know I'm talking to my patients about access to gender affirming care and to hormones, making sure people have access to surgery, making sure people have access to routine um, reproductive care or sexually transmitted infection testing, things like that. We had to defer a lot of that care because of the pandemic. It is very, very hard for a group of people that had been left out for a long time to be hurt, to be told, you can't come in now, you can't come get the care that you need. Even though we recognize how important this is, we just simply can't do it. That was a really hard conversation to have. We're at a place now, uh, you know, six months later through this pandemic, where we're able to open up and fully provide the care that people need. We find a way to get people in safely, make sure that they can access everything, but it took a long time to get here. And I, I can guarantee you there are patients in my own practice, despite how hard I work, who um, had delays in their care. And there are people all across this country who are probably still experiencing delays in their care. I have a question, Robbie. Right now in Massachusetts, teens who want to get an abortion need to go to a judge. It would be better if they could go to a doctor. Can you share your thoughts on that and why would you think it would be better? Yeah, so there's a really special relationship between a doctor and a patient uh, and between any healthcare provider and a patient. I don't want to single out doctors alone. Uh, and I think that relationship, when built on trust, can really be profound. That private conversation between patient and healthcare provider needs to be respected, needs to be lifted up, needs to be the basis of the decisions going forward. A doctor and his or her patient can make the decision around abortion. That's where that decision should rest. 
right? It shouldn't be taken out of the hands of the individual, the woman and her provider, and move to a potential political process in a judge's hands or move it into a space that might delay care or move it into a space that might push access to an even harder level to reach, right? There is no reason why a physician who makes decisions about many other things, right? Many, many, many other things about um, how best to manage individual issues, um, why that physician shouldn't be the primary point person about how to move forward with the decision. So, you know, what the Roe Act does is incredibly important because it gives that power back to the patient and it gives that power back to the patient-provider relationship. That is where, where we can really center ourselves and make sure we're making the correct decisions. One of the issues that's come up when people talk about the judicial bypass, the sending teens in is number one, the school to prison pipeline. So you get a teenager who's in school and instead of going to school one day, they have to go to court to have health care. And that judges aren't always informed about how to manage people who are experiencing trauma the way doctors are. Other people have said, well, a judge sees you one time, a doctor sees you one time. What's the difference? So I'm asking you, what is the difference? Training, <laughs> training. So you know, I went to I went to many years. I got an MD and a PhD. But most most of the physicians go to four years of medical school. We do a long residency training. We um, are really trained not just in the science of medicine. That is really important. We do that, but also about how do you connect with a patient? How in five minutes can you begin to build that relationship where there's trust and empathy and support? Right? That is our job. That's what we're taught to do. That's not what judges are taught to do. So the five minutes that you spend with a physician or longer right, has so much more meaning and so much more depth than it would be if, if a teenager simply kind of marched through the, the legal system in front of a court and in front of a judge and then marched right back out. One thing I noticed is that you were super comfortable talking about abortion as healthcare, and that's something that for some people who have either had an abortion but are, say, my age in their 50s or older, there's a great stigma about talking about it. Younger people have more of a shout your abortion, well, some people have this shout your abortion and really kind of coming out and telling their stories, and it can make people feel much better. What's making you comfortable talking about it. And I'm also interested in knowing this, this language around coming out and breaking down stigmas has been really helpful in yeah. Massachusetts for people who are same sex to get married and live a much more open life with greater equity. I see parallels, but yeah. I do think yeah. the abortion movement may be a little behind. Yes. Well, I'm glad that we're talking about stigma here because that's what this is all about. And I can say in everything that I do in the hospital, the past 10 years has been focused on getting rid of stigma breaking down the walls that exist. That's for the LGBTQ community. That's for people living with HIV. That is for people who are living with substance use disorder. It is about breaking down the stigma. And the way that you do that is that you normalize the conversation. We talk about abortion as healthcare because abortion is healthcare. There's nothing shameful about healthcare. There's absolutely nothing shameful about talking about your own body and your own reproductive system. And when we can begin to normalize that for people, that allows people to get rid of that stigma, right? Move aside from that and be more comfortable with sharing. I will also say the flip side is I never force any of my patients to go out and share their stories or to share their diagnoses or share anything about themselves until they're ready. That's not what that's about. But it is modeling for people how you can have a conversation without any shame, without any stigma, without any victimization in it.
One last question goes to something Glennis raised, which is there's Glennis, a constituent, going to vote and potentially standing next to a monument that is opposed to abortion, certainly not seeing it as health care. That kind of intimidation is out there. How will you, if you're elected, go forward and knowing there's some people out there who are very intimidating, how will you manage that? I think we need to be just as loud and we need to be just as strong because we are on the right side. We have the data and the evidence on our side. We have the stories on our side. We have the emotion. We have it all on our side. So let's go out there and be proud of it, right? Going back to that breaking down stigma, it is about just going out there and normalizing this conversation. We are for expanding healthcare for everyone in this country. And that includes women and that includes access to abortion. Yes, thank you. Fantastic. We have really enjoyed this time with you. Robbie, how can we get more information about you? Do you have a website? Do you have a link that you can give us, please? Absolutely. So the, the best way to find out more information is to go to my website, www.robbieforchange.com. Perfect. We'll so we'll be looking for that. Remember, Robbie for a change. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much, Robbie. Thanks, everyone.